Good morning. My name is Joe Martin. Thank you, uh, Pastor Jeremy, for that introduction. Uh, I've been a member here, I guess, uh, for seven years now um, when we were first adopted. And one of the best things about that is that I get to see kind of the long-term work that God has done in this church uh, over years and years and years and the way that he's grown it and the people that he's raised up and sanctified. And being here today is just a reminder of all that. Um, one of the things that you often worry about <clears throat> when you're preaching is that you'll have a clear gospel presentation. And I was just sitting here thinking like, man, the gospel has been preached here so many times already uh, through the, the testimony of baptism, through the songs uh, that we just sang. Uh, and so it's just a privilege to be a part of this church uh, and to be uh, presenting God's word to you here today. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. This week, uh, as people ask me what I was going to be preaching about, I would tell them it's, uh, it's John 18, and, and rather than just assuming that they somehow knew what, what that book of the Bible and that particular chapter covered, I would say it's about the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And the looks that I got after that were like, oh, whoa, okay. Uh, as if like this is some type of, you know, real sad event in Christianity. And in a certain sense it is, but I hope that you'll see here today a God a Christ that is in control of all situations, even his own betrayal. And through all of those things is working everything together for our good. So please stand as we read John chapter 18 all the way down uh, from verse 1 to verse 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Oh God, today as we read about the beginning of the passion of your son, God, I pray that we would be struck with his love for us, with his shepherding care over all of us. God, I pray that we would be amazed at the, the person that he was and is. And God, I pray that we, no one would leave here resolved to drink their own cup. So in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Maybe it's just me, but when you haven't flown on an airplane in a while, it's not very hard to convince yourself that you are definitely going to die. And that's, that was me this time about last week. Um, I'd been sick. P people call me patient zero uh, for whatever they're dealing with. I usually get blamed as the one that gave it to them because I'm <laughs> sick all the time. And so I was getting over one sickness 
I, I then was struck down with a sickness that spread through our BFG like wildfire. I literally thought, like, this is spiritual warfare. This is suffering as a Christian in America. It's like we all shared Thanksgiving dinner, and then we went home and all became violently ill. So I was getting over that. Uh, I, 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 I was very ill, let's say, throughout the day. And then 24 hours later, I was due to get on a flight, and I couldn't postpone it. The person that was supposed to, to change our flights, it was a work flight, person was supposed to change it was also on our BFG. She was sick too, and I just thought, I have to, I have to get on this flight. And so the day came, it, it, it was again 24 hours since I had last been sick. And so I'm waving goodbye to Lara and my two young sons, just thinking this is the last time I'll ever see them. <clears throat> I'm very depressed. I've been in bed, right? I thought I was going to be spending all kinds of special quality time with my family. None of that happened. I'm just laying in the bed, just marathoning Netflix, trying to, trying to sleep. And so I'm, I'm waving goodbye to them. Last, of course, this is the last time I'm ever going to see them. Literally, and I'm, I'm not lying to you, I don't know if you know the Alanis Morissette song from the early 2000s, Ironic, where the guy is on the plane and he's thinking, of course this is happening, the plane's crashing down. That's, that, was in my, that song was in my head as I drove away. So I get to the airport, I'm getting on the plane. If you, if you wait and you book late and it's near Thanksgiving, you're going to have to sit in a middle seat. And of course, there's no assigned seats when I was flying Southwest, so I'm like, I have to pick a seat. It's only seats in the middle. There are no more seats in between even small people. It's only seats in between large males. And so I get in, I sit down, everything is touching. My arms, both sides are touching these two guys. One of them is doing back stretches the whole flight with headphones in. The other one is like meditating, looks like on an Excel spreadsheet in his head. And I'm just thinking these are the people that I'm gonna die with. But more than, it, and I'm, I'm being serious here, I thought, <clears throat> I thought, none of these people care about me. None of them care about each other. And I'm going on a work conference trip where nobody cares about anybody. I mean, maybe some do, but really everybody's there to impress each other. And I was weak and I was tired and I apologize to everyone that I flew with because they're probably all sick now too. And I was sick. <laughs> and I was just thinking like, I, I'm, I wanna be where I'm loved. I wanna experience and see real love. There's one other thing I didn't tell you about this flight. Because in front of me, I realized I was sitting behind the baby. And that is, of course, where no one wants to be on a plane. But for me, I was like, yes. There was a little baby and her mother and then the mother's mother, three generations. And through the crack in my seat, I could just kind of observe that whole scene playing out. This little eight-month-old baby girl being loved on and doted over by her mom, and then the grandmother over here helping out too. And I like held on to that image. I thought that's pure, that's unconditional, that's self-sacrificial love. And if even nobody else where I'm going to or, or where I am now cares about one another, these people, they love one another. And it's a real and it's a true and authentic love. But there's good news for us in this room. If you're down and you're depressed and you're sad or you're lonely or you're sick, you don't have to hope that kind of life serves you up some example of love that you can observe from the outside, which is kind of creepily what I was doing, right? In fact, you are the object of a love greater than that, a love that even surpasses the love that a mother has for her children, the love that I get to observe in my own home every single day. Jesus, in fact, compares himself to a mother one time compares himself to a mother hen, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. It's a beautiful image here of Jesus looking out at those that he was sent to save 
And he wants to pull them together like a mother hen, spreading out her wings, providing that warmth and that shelter and that closeness to his people. And the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, right before what we picked up today, is a beautifully extended example of this. Jesus, and if you ever need hope or encouragement or peace, read, this, read John chapter 17. Jesus is ending his ministry with his disciple. He's, he's praying to God for them and about them. And it is a beautiful outpouring of love for his disciples and by extension for us. He says, for instance, in John chapter 17, verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus here is saying that the love that God has for him, his only son, his firstborn son, he wants that same love for us. He himself wants to be in us. But in John 18, where we are today, those words get legs and those thoughts and words become actions. And that's what we see happening here in the garden. And the first thing that we see in these first two verses is don't run from the will of God. Be like Jesus and don't run from the will of God. Verses one and two, let's look at those again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. I love how it opens with when Jesus spoke, had spoken these words. In other words, Jesus is ready. There's nothing left to say at this point. He said it, and now it's time to jump into action. It reminded me of uh, one time at work, college camp, I work at UK, and college campuses can be a place sometimes where tragic events unfold, as we saw at Virginia Tech. And so we were having an active shooter training. And the guy running this training was kind of telling us what to do, you know, how to block your door and all this stuff. But as a preface to that, he was kind of telling us about what makes a first responder different from most of the rest of us. And he said, the difference is that whenever shots are being fired, whenever something awful is going down, and all of us are running away, right, running away from the, the violence and the gunshots, he said, their job is to run in the other direction. They run to the event. They run to the action. And that's what all of our police officers and first responders and paramedics do. And that stuck with me. And as I read this passage, I thought that's what Jesus is doing here. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's known from the beginning that he'll be betrayed by Jesus, Judas, except he doesn't run from it, right? You can tell by where he goes, and John points this out. This would be kind of like if you had your men's, you know, Cracker Barrel Friday morning breakfast Bible study, and one of the guys that you just invited uh, said, hey, I'll be back next week, but of course I'm going to kill you all. You wouldn't go back to the same place. You'd be like, after he left, you'd be like, okay, see you then. And then you'd be like, guys, we are definitely not coming back to Cracker Barrel. Let's... Um, is Bob Evans open? No. Okay, we'll find another place. But Jesus wasn't concerned about preserving his own life. Right? He was concerned about preserving the lives of his disciples. You know, I imagine if we were to ask uh, people that aren't Christians, and maybe you're not a Christian here today, I, I would imagine the assumptions about what the Bible is made up of. If you ask people like, hey, what do you think's in the Bible? One of those kind of interview people in the street things. I think they would say it's probably about like, Holy people doing holy things. And certainly we see that's what Jesus is doing here. But of course we know that the Bible is not full of people doing things like this. In fact, for every example of someone doing what Jesus is doing here, following the will of God, not running from the will of God, it seems like we've got 10 of people doing the opposite. Famously, the example of 
Jonah, right? Jonah, who was told, hey, go preach to the people of Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? There's a boat heading to Nineveh. And he's like, where's this other boat going? And he gets on that one, right? Even the pagans in the story are more concerned about the will of God than Jonah is. And even Israel, just as a whole, is constantly running from the will of God. God says, go do this. Go take this land. Go do X. And they're like, well, what about Y? And then, like, out of nowhere, they're fashioning a golden idol for themselves to worship. But yet, Jesus here is an example of someone in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. He is the true Israel, and he's following to the letter God's will. But you may be asking yourself, well, what is God's will for my life? If you're a college student here today, you probably ask yourself that question every day twice before breakfast, right? (laughs) What is God's will for my life? You know, what major should I declare? Who should I date? Where should I date them? Outback or Chick-fil-A? God, reveal your will to me. (laughs) But there's some of you here today on the other end of things. Like, in in our household, we, we go to bed every night to the sound of children screaming, and we wake up to the same sound, and this also follows us throughout the day. And very often, we're not asking deep questions about what God's will for our life might be. But there's good news for both groups. If you're a college student or if you're a parent who who doesn't ever sleep, there's good news for you about the will of God. And the good news is that generally you probably already know it. There's a special will of God for your life that he's going to unfold for you you as you progress through the years. There's also a general will, and that general will is to do what he said to do. And you know what those things are, right? I mean, just let me see if this sounds familiar to you. Serve your earthly masters. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Honor your father and mother. Make disciples of all nations. That's God's will for your life. So how can we be bold in doing that? Because sometimes following even those simple things can be scary. Sometimes even following those simple commandments can come with a lot of sacrifices. Well, we can see then in the example of Jesus that we ought not to be afraid because God is in control. Look at verses three through four. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? To give you a little bit of context here, we're going to rewind all the way to John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read to you a few select verses. But even though these are several chapters back, this is all happening around the same time. And John gives us a description of what was happening in the upper room prior to these events. So Jesus had spoken to his disciples, and he says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. John, the author of this gospel, asked him, who, would it, who is it? And Jesus presumably whispers to him, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When I read about this passage, I'm reminded of Josh and Stephanie Durnell's proposal. Josh and Stephanie Durnell are in, <laughs> sorry, context coming. Uh, Josh and Stephanie Durnell, they are, uh, they are missionaries now in New Orleans, sent out by our church. But I got to be a part of their proposal one night. I always get 
self-conscious about other people's proposals. Mine was not elaborate or grand, and since I've witnessed many on Facebook that are, I was a part of this one. It was incredibly grand and elaborate. Josh goes, he like takes Stephanie out to this to the, kind of like the peninsula at Lake Reba. It's night, it's totally black outside. He proposes to her, and then off in the distance, as if we were like snipers waiting in the bushes, there's a bunch of church members, and we've got paper lanterns and like a, ho- a bunch of lighters. So whenever he proposes, somehow we get the signal, and we light these things, and then Stephanie looks out, and up in the sky and reflecting on the water are these beautiful, glowing paper lanterns everywhere, right? I'm like, hey, Laura, my proposal was okay too, right? <laughs> but it was a beautiful sight, and this something probably Stephanie never would have forgotten. I mean, there's something about a black night with, with fire that just calls our attention. And John, similarly, never would have forgotten this sight that he describes in chapter 18 of a host of lanterns and torches, except it wasn't a beautiful sight. It was a sight of impending judgment, right? The, cap- the capture of Jesus. These were as many as, and commentators are, are somewhat uh, in, in not perfect agreement about how many people this would represent, but the general consensus is anywhere from 200 to 1,000 Roman soldiers coming to capture Jesus. This is what the Romans did. They overwhelmed people with sheer force. There was, of course, this Jewish festival happening, and so they didn't want any kind of riots or uprisings to break out. This guy, of course, they knew Jesus was some kind of leader or maybe some kind of rebellion or something like that, so they don't want any kind of skirmish to overwhelm them, and so they show up with overwhelming force, torches, lanterns, and swords, and John would have watched this coming up over the hillside to this garden. And we know what happens next, right? Spoiler alert, Judas betrays Jesus. Don't you hate spoilers? I was asking uh, my brother John this week, uh, he's gone to see Justice League, I hadn't seen it yet, and I was like, how was it? And I was just kind of hoping for like, you know, seven out of 10, uh, would recommend, whatever, which I got, but then seconds later, unprompted, before I could stop my ears or shout no, he just spoiled the whole movie. (laughs) And then just sat there kind of like, oops, right? So I guess... Thanks for saving me 20 bucks, John. I'm not going to see it now because I know what happens. None of that is going to hit me with any dramatic impact. And maybe that's what happens for you when you hear about Judas. Oh, Judas, yeah, 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 I know. I know the story, right? Judas betrays Jesus. Everybody knows this. Um, there was a, my grandmother, when I, uh, when I visited her at Morning Point, uh, she had a friend there that was from Brooklyn who had a, a touch of Alzheimer's. And whenever we would bring Jude, our one-year-old child, Jude, J-U-D-E, right, Jude, whenever we'd bring Jude to meet her, she would ask us sometimes several times what his name was, and I learned to really enunciate that. I would say, Jude, right, because what accidentally happened one time is she said, what's his name? She had this great book on accent, uh, and I said, his name's Jude, and she said, not the betrayer, right, I mean, she knew, she knew who Judas was, she was afraid we had named our child Judas, which, by the way, nobody does, (laughs) We name, we name children after fruits and vegetables and colors now, but nobody, nobody names their kid Judas because we all know who Judas is and what he did. But here's my, my concern. My concern is that because of that, the story loses its impact. This true series of events doesn't hit us. Let me put it in basketball terms to try to, to bring this home. This would be like championship game. Duke versus UK. Let's imagine somehow Duke has been number one all season. UK has been like the underdogs. We have been the Cinderella story. We come up, we make it to the championship game. We're down by one 
point. There's five seconds left on the clock. We got the ball. It comes in bounds. The player takes a dribble. He looks up the court. You're thinking, is he going to go for a long pass? Is he going to drive it and go for a, a slam dunk? He turns around as the seconds tick down and dunks it in our own basket. Can you imagine? People would be tearing their shirts open. They'd be crying. You would be burning your own couch at the betrayal. <laughs> and this is what, this is, this, this, listen, this is worse. What's happening here is worse. Judas was handpicked by Jesus himself. Judas had just had his feet washed hours prior by Jesus. Judas had witnessed the miracles done by Jesus firsthand. Judas was in the 12 that when Jesus wanted to get away from everybody else, he went and retreated into the company of Judas. These people were tighter than we can ever imagine. They formed the kind of bond that maybe only soldiers form, and yet here Judas is betraying Jesus. He fell farther and harder than any other human being ever has or ever will, from the company and the friendship of Christ to betraying him with a kiss, and this would have sent earth-shattering shockwaves through the disciples. Imagine you are John, and you're thinking, this is it. This is the end. They're coming to get us, and by the way, All of the disciples except John thought that Judas had just gone out to give money to the poor. And yet here he comes leading the enemy to Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine the emotional heartache. Imagine Jesus himself, who even though he knew what was going to happen, right? You cannot get through that without being emotionally wrecked by this. Judas's actions here are the absolute antithesis of Jesus. Here standing face to face at one point, even embracing him with a kiss, is Judas possessed by Satan himself and Jesus possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. And Judas is the absolute anti-Christ. Jesus, who had said greater love has no one than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. What's Judas doing? He is laying down his friend's life for 30 pieces of silver. So how could Jesus, in a moment like this, be so bold? Because we see a Jesus here who is completely in charge and in control, even faced with as many as a thousand soldiers, even faced with Satan himself. And the first way that that Jesus was able to do this is that he knew God's will. Just like we talked about a moment ago, Jesus knew God's will for his life. He had just prayed, God, if there's any other way, let's do it that way. And he got no response to the contrary. And Jesus said, proceed as planned, right? He knew this was God's will for his life. And I hope that we too can be bold when it comes to carrying out God's will, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice. Secondly, Jesus had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As it is mentioned, even though Judas was possessed by Satan himself, Jesus was indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Way back in John 1, chapter 1, verse 32, it says, the Spirit descended upon Jesus and it remained on him. And that's key. It didn't leave. There were plenty of people in the Old Testament that got the Spirit of God. Saul had God's Holy Spirit on him, but then it left him. And it says an evil spirit came and tormented him. David had God's Spirit and dwelt within him. But of course, when he sinned with Bathsheba, we, see, we hear his prayer, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We see that same spirit rush upon Samson to do amazing, miraculous deeds, right? Slaying a thousand guys with the jawbone of a donkey. But then the same spirit would rush off him, and he would be presumably a normal man like the rest of us. But Jesus had God's spirit on him and in him, and it didn't leave. 
And the amazing things, friends, is that that same spirit is in us. That same spirit doesn't leave us. Jesus told his disciples at the the culmination of his ministry, he said, it's good if I go because you get the spirit. The same spirit that was indwelling him in this pivotal moment is in us. We are empowered. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That was a fact I was reminding myself of 15 minutes ago, and I hope it's one you remind yourself of every day. And then finally, Jesus had given his life over to God. Jesus had said, my life is yours, God. It's the same thing that we hear Paul telling to God. As he's saying, I've poured myself out like a drink offering. I am a living sacrifice. And that ought to be true of every Christian in this room. In fact, we ought to recognize the truth of that even for our own children. I pray for my boys every night. I pray that God would raise them up to be strong Christian men. Pray they'd have sweet dreams, and, and, and when, I, when I remember, I pray, God, help me to recognize that, that they're yours first, and then they're mine, that their lives belong to you, so that someday, when they turn 18, not a day sooner, when they turn 18 and they say, Dad, I, you know, I want to go be a missionary someplace that's violent and dangerous, I hope and pray that I'll be able to say, praise God. Because you're his. And if that's his calling on you, then Godspeed. Jesus recognized that his life belonged to God. And so he was bold in the face of Judas. Verses 5 through 7, we see we need to recognize who Jesus is. Picking up in verse 5, say, they answered him when Jesus said, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I made it to that conference last week. And when I was there, uh, I I, I was trying to make my time as productive as possible. So I was sitting in a hotel lobby. I was was working on some things on my computer. And a guy comes up to the same table and opens up his laptop and starts to work on things. And he had a couple of stickers on his screen. People do this. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. They put stickers on their laptop kind of to make sure you're aware of their identity. And so he had, a, he had one that was kind of like some inconsequential political thing, but he had another one, and it was, it was a cartoon drawing of Jesus shooting a jump shot. Uh, sandals, robe, kind of red sash, kind of, I think they call it fingers in the cookie jar, right? Like a perfect fadeaway, wrist flicked. And I was just looking at it. I mean, of course, I'm distracted at this point. I'm just, my, my hands are on the keys, but they're not moving. I'm just looking at it. My first thought is like, what? And then my second thought, I think, was why? Um, my third thought was probably like, man, if we were in Afghanistan, you definitely wouldn't have a cartoon drawing of Muhammad on your computer. Maybe I should mention that. And then my fourth thought, I was thinking back to when I was in college, and everybody had these shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And it was this cartoonish drawing of Jesus, and he was holding his hands out, and the, the lettering was like in Pimp My Ride style lettering, kind of graffiti style. Jesus is my homeboy. It's the same sentiment, right? Just regurgitated over and over again. It's the same one that, we, that you see if you've ever seen the movie Talladega Nights, where Ricky Bobby is praying to sweet, precious, eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus, right? And it's just, ha, 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 ha. 
What a joke Jesus is, right? That's, that's the sentiment here. He's funny. He's a cartoon. He's silly. He's a baby. But man, that is not the picture of Jesus that we get in the New Testament. The picture that we get of Jesus in the New Testament is the guy that's sleeping on the front of a boat when his disciples are thinking, oh my goodness, we're about to die. We're going to capsize and drown. And they wake Jesus up and they're saying, don't you care? And he gets up and he stands in front of the boat and he says to the storm, be still. And then the scariest possible thing happens next. It stops. So the disciples go from being worried about the storm to worried about the guy in the front of the boat and saying, who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? This moment here, when they say, when Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. This is a pivotal moment in Jesus's life. This begins effectively the passion of the Christ. These soldiers are looking for a man, right? Whom do you seek? First name, Jesus. Last name, you know, place of origin. But what they get is a divine response. They get the words, I am. Right? We, we translate in our Bibles, I am he. But literally, we, the response is, I am. There's seven other I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of, the, of, of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But here you just have the words, I am. It's similar to what he said in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. It's the exact same way that God described himself in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. It means Jesus is the self-existing one, the all-sustaining one, the one who was and will forever continue to be. Something happened here when he said those words, right? Matthew Henry, this biblical commentator I lived a long time ago, said with these words, he spoke them to the ground. And he notes that if he'd wanted to, he could have spoken the ground open beneath their very feet. See, for a brief moment here, the shroud of this earthly world is peeled back and Jesus is understood for who he truly is. It's similar to what happened to that Roman guard that sees Jesus dying on the cross and says, for whatever reason, truly this man was the son of God, right? He's just struck with it. Rudolf Otto was this German scholar and theologian back in the early 20th century. And he described this experience as something called numinous awe. Numinous awe. And he says it's got three characteristics. When someone's experiencing numinous awe, they're experiencing a blank wonder, a trembling in the soul, and I love this part, a distinct realization of one's creatureliness before the presence of something above all creatures. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain gives, gives a beautiful description of it. He says, suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. And then paraphrasing here, he says, now suppose you were told simply there is a mighty spirit in the room and believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitant and a prostration before it, an emotion which might be expressed in Shakespeare's words, under it, my genius is rebuked. It's what these soldiers, I think, were experiencing here. They came looking for a man, but what they found instead was a God. They came looking for someone to which swords and lanterns and torches would help you out. But what they found was someone so above and beyond all of those things. I wonder if anybody here has come today in search of a man, of a historical figure, somebody that you can draw conclusions about, 
and have an opinion about that you can express when you want to sound sophisticated. If that's you, I hope that you are surprised at what you have found instead. See, Jesus was a man. He was a good teacher. He wasn't any less than that, but he was so, so much more. Verses 8 through 9, we see that we should never forget the promise of the shepherd. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was far from the only person ever to claim to be a Jewish Messiah. In fact, there is, as I discovered a couple of days ago, there is a Wikipedia page called List of Claimants to be a Jewish Messiah. Right? I'm sorry, List of Jewish Messiah Claimants. Right? This is something people did. I mean, the, the, Judaism is, is a messianic religion. They're looking for this guy. And so he wasn't the only one. And you can imagine, if you're a Roman and you understand, you have a kind of somewhat understanding of Judaism, you know they're looking for a Messiah, and this guy claims to be a Messiah, you, can, you could think, like, hey, we get rid of him and the movement dies. That's how it often works, right? You cut off the head, the body is gone. And I think that's the idea that Jesus was trying to tap into here. Hey, 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 look at me. Look at me. I'm the leader. Take me. If you're looking for me and you keep saying that you are, get up off the ground and let these men Go. I was the the song that Clay chose to sing this morning in Christ alone. It was just so powerful to be thinking of these words. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's imagery drawn directly from Jesus' own metaphor. I am the good shepherd. Not even Satan can snatch you out of my hands. And we see that played out here. The closest I've ever come to this was the first time I held my son. Jude, who's now three. Um, first time I held him in the hospital room, Laura had been pregnant for nine, is nine or ten. It's nine or ten months. I think it's nine, but then they say, no, it's really ten. It had been a long time. A long time to develop a bond, I think, with this baby. Laura would, you know, lovingly look down at her belly and feel him kick. Um, I think she felt like she knew Jude before he was ever born. That relationship had begun a long time ago. But for me, you know, even though I was really cool to feel him kick and I was really excited for her and super, super empathetic about all the pains and everything she was experiencing, for me, it didn't really begin and nothing really changed in my head and my heart until I first held him in that hospital room. Man, it changed then. They, they handed me this little baby and he's wrapped up in that little, you know, it's the same towel they've been using, I think, for like 30 years. They had him wrapped up in that thing. They use different ones, right? But they all look the same. They had them wrapped up in that, just like a little burrito. And they put them in my arms. And I remember feeling about how lightweight he was. There's just nothing there. It was like almost as if it was just the towel. I was looking down at him like his skin is so red. His little eyes are closed. And suddenly thoughts were flooding in my head. And, and the most dominant thought was, God forbid anybody ever try to get between me and this little baby. I'm, I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit I was having violent thoughts. Thoughts like what I would do to anybody that ever hurt this kid. But as I read this passage, I felt somewhat comforted because I thought that's what a shepherd would be thinking too. Right? A shepherd is out in the field and he's got his staff and he sees some wolf stalking around or some bear or whatever else. 
He's having violent thoughts. He's thinking, nothing is going to come between me and my sheep. Nothing is going to go attack those sheep without me getting in the way first with my rod and my staff. Jesus knew that there would have to be violence in order to keep his sheep safe. But he wasn't going to be the one perpetrating the violence. He knew in order to keep his sheep safe, that violence was going to have to be done against him. And he fully owned up to that. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus shows that in order to fully love others, you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself. He said, in fact, greater love has no one than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. But I don't know if you know what he says next. That's John 15, 13. John 15, 14, rather than leaving it abstract, he looks at his disciples and he says, you are my friends. Greater love has no one than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. It's impossible to miss the conclusion. I will lay down my life for you. Guys, the same is true for us today. If you're a Christian in this room, Jesus has laid down his life for you. Your destiny is safe. You are loved. Jesus is in control. Finally, the last thing that we see here is don't try to have your best life now. No matter what Joel Osteen says, don't try to have your best life now. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter's trying to have his best life now. None of this is going the way Peter hoped it would go, right? Peter is like, what, what, how in charge am I going to be, Jesus, when you are sitting on your throne? And now, wait, the Romans are coming and they've got swords and torches. They're taking you away. Judas is leading them. No, no, no. This is not, none of this leads to me being in a position of power. None of this leads to everything going my way right now. And of course, he genuinely loved Jesus. He said, no, 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 you're not going to hurt my friend. That's not what I want. I don't want it from me, and I don't want it to him. Jesus had just prayed to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. But you see Peter here saying, Jesus, not your will, but mine be done. And we do the same thing all the time. Jesus, Judah, Peter is rejecting his role as a sheep and trying to be the shepherd. And I think, friends, that we often fall into the same temptation. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what do we often say in response? No, Jesus, I got this. Right? We're like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. And we're walking around with, with a pack on our back like 10 times bigger than Santa's. And it's weighing us down and it's crushing us. And Jesus is saying, give it to me. And we're saying, no, 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 really, it's good. It's not as bad as it looks. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He's getting in the way of God's plan. And this isn't the first time this has happened. Jesus had just tried to wash his feet. And Peter's like, Lord, no, you'll never wash my feet, right? Jesus had just explained to him earlier in his ministry that he must suffer. He must go and die and suffer at the hands of the Romans and on a cross under the wrath of God for the sins of his disciples and for the whole world. And Peter's like, far be it from you, Lord. To which Jesus famously responds, get out of my way, Satan. Jesus recognizes that that same attitude is a satanic one. Peter tries to jump in control. He tries to be the shepherd. And when he does, he does a terrible job, just like us, right? He draws a sword. He rushes forward. I'm sure I, I recognize his thought process. In fact, I'm pretty sure that one time in high school, I only got into one fight, but I almost got into another one. The guy was a lot bigger than me. Same guy, actually. 
And uh, I think I said to him, you, you're, you would definitely beat me up, but I will, def- I will break your nose first, right? It was not a good thought. But I think that's what Peter was thinking here, right? Peter has no chance, but he's like, hey, I'm going down. At least I'm going to lop off one guy's head before I go, right? That'll be a nice way to go. And pathetically, pathetically, he cuts off somebody's ear. And I've, guys, I've meditated on this passage. I've read it so many times, and I just thought, how does this even happen? How do you swing a sword and cut off a guy's ear? I mean, this is like what Mike Tyson did, and he did it better, and he didn't even have a sword. (laughs) But imagine for a second, put Peter aside, and imagine now you're Malchus. You're a servant, and you're sitting there, right? You're you're probably way up past whatever you, whenever you wanted to be up. You're off of you, and somehow you got pushed in front here, right, which is not where you want to be in some type of conflict. Now some guy's just rushed at you, and he's cut off your ear, you're bleeding, your ear is on the ground, you're probably freaking out a little bit, and you're probably having a similar thought to a quote that's often attributed to Gandhi, right? This is on the bumpers of a thousand Priuses. We used to have a Prius. (laughs) I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. I think Malchus is a lot like many people today, injured by people who would call themselves Christians. And we ought to really think about that. I think when we try to make God's plan in our own image, when we try to be like Peter and have our best life now, when we try to make the world and the kingdom of God by force and not by preaching and by love and by teaching and by discipleship, people are going to get hurt along the way. It may be comforted to know that Luke records that Jesus, in what was his last miracle before his own resurrection, touches Malchus's ear and heals it. See, for Christians, our best life comes later. But Peter, who was Jesus's perhaps closest friend, misses this point. Fundamentally misunderstands Jesus's mission to where Jesus has to look at him one last time and say, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Psalm 75, 8 says, for in the hand of Yahweh, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Guys, many of us today are prone to misunderstand Jesus' mission just like Peter was. When we hear about this cup of God's wrath that the wicked are having to drink, what we think is, oh boy, I better get my act together. I better stop hitting the bottle so hard. Uh, Maybe I'll add a third Sunday that I get my family to church each year. That's not the right response. The kind of response Peter might have, that's the kind of response maybe half of Madison County or more might have, but that's not the right response. The The right response isn't, man, I need to make sure that cup isn't quite so overflowing. The right response is, I need to ask Jesus to drink it for me. That's the only thing that you can do with the cup of God's wrath for you. It's not a matter of trying to make it overflow a little less. The question is, who will drink it? You, Peter, or Jesus? See, it wasn't a torch that Peter had to fear. It wasn't a sword. It wasn't a bunch of Roman soldiers. It wasn't the Jewish authorities. The only thing Peter really truly had to fear was a cup, the cup of God's wrath overflowing with judgment for him. And Jesus' response is, let me drink it for you. Get out of my way so I can drink that cup for you. 
Friends, we don't have to worry about Rome anymore. But we got plenty to worry about, right? Kim Jong-un, crooked politicians, home invaders, I don't know, gangs, ISIS. But really all we should be worrying about is a cup. A cup of judgment laid up for the wicked. The same number that we can be a part of if we don't turn to Jesus and say, please drink it for me. John Duncan, an 18th century pastor and theologian, said this quote that I think summarizes everything so well. He said, the gospel does not say there is a savior if you wish to be saved. But instead, sir, you have no right to go to hell. You cannot go there without trampling on the son of God. Friends, if you're lost, if you're unholy, if you're prone to do things on your own, if you're fearful, if you're trying to make everything happen your way, put the sword away. Flee to Christ, your friend and your brother. Let him drink the cup for you. Flee to the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and for you.